five, four, three, two, one. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside You, the college sports podcast. I'm your host, Xavier Audic, and it is Group of Five Wednesday. So let's get right to it. A lot of things to cover today. First things first, we're going to go over some of the big storylines right now in college sports. Starting off, if you missed it, last Friday, Louisville was absolutely manhandled by Paul Johnson and Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech managed to post 66 points on Louisville. This is a team who up until now the story had been their offense's inability, but this game showed both offensive and defensive inability. Remember, Louisville head coach Bob Petrino entered the season with a lot of criticism, a lot of attention to him regarding the fact that three of his 10 assistant coaches are related to him either directly or indirectly. Two of them his children, one of them his son-in-law. Petrino in the offseason hired former Notre Dame defensive coordinator Brian Van Gorder. It was hoped that Van Gorder's previous experience facing Paul Johnson's triple option would assist the Cardinals in their game, but that did not work. The Cardinals right now 2-4, and 0-3 oh in ACC play, and very well likely to miss out on their first bowl game under Bobby Petrino. Naturally, this has led to many to speculate about when Petrino might be fired. Unfortunately, Petrino signed a contract extension in 2016 through 2024, and it was announced today a board of trustees member for the University of Louisville went on record saying that at this moment they cannot afford to pay Petrino his buyout. The school is still paying Xavier University for Chris Mack, their new basketball coach's buyout, as well as paying former athletic director Tom Jurich the remainder of his contract, and there's the possibility of having to pay a vast amount of money to former head basketball coach Rick Pitino. So in case you were wondering, it looks like Petrino will be around for at least the immediate future, if not well into next season. Also, if you're out of school and you're unhappy with your head coach, consider the possibility of them also having to deal with these same financial obligations. Right. Specifically, I'm talking about LSU head football coach Ed Orgeron. LSU right now, remember, still paying former football coach Les Miles as well as Les Miles' former offensive coordinator, and having to shell out a ton of funds in the offseason for former offensive coordinator Matt Kanata, who's now at Maryland. So a lot of money going out. Naturally, not as much coming in due to the poor performance on the field, and it's very hard to move on with these expensive buyouts, which have become accustomed to any head coaching contract in college football today. So that moves us right along to a bit of positive news. Tennessee State defensive player Christian Abercrombie. If you remember, Abercrombie was injured in Tennessee's game against Vanderbilt in a crosstown rivalry. Initially, Abercrombie went to the the sidelines complaining of a headache. He was giving oxygen. He then collapsed on the side of the field, taken to Vanderbilt Medical Center for emergency surgery. His mom announced yesterday on Twitter that she was able to squeeze his hand. Other relatives saying that he was able to put up his hand and show four fingers on command. Great showing for Abercrombie. Obviously, anytime a player of the young has to deal with such a life-threatening and emergency surgery, you get worried, but it looks like Abercrombie is continuing to improve, and hopefully we hope that he'll continue to improve and be returned to normal health. So great to hear. We'll continue to monitor Abercrombie and the rest of his story. But again, thoughts and prayers still with him and his family, but good to see him moving in the right direction. Then that moves us on to possibly the most damaging News for the NCAA recently, Todd McNair, the former running back coach at USC. McNair, remember, was issued a show-cost penalty in response to his involvement with Reggie Bush following the Reggie Bush scandal while at running back at USC. This ultimately resulted in Bush having to give back his Heisman Trophy to the NCAA. 
McNair, the only personnel member from that entire investigation to be issued a show cost penalty, hasn't coached since at the collegiate level, although he is currently a assistant coach at a high school in California. A Superior Court judge in Southern California, Frederick Schaller, issued a ruling that the NCAA's show cause orders violate California law. Naturally, the NCAA, which was already concerned about this judge's prior previous preliminary ruling as show cause orders being violative of California law, very concerned about this. Pac-12 conference member Larry Scott has already gone on record saying that he fears that this might prevent the Pac-12 from existing as all of its California schools might not be able to comply with the NCAA's bylaws and regulations. I think, first of all, this is a very big uh, dramatization by Larry Scott and the other conference members and the NCAA at this point for a number of reasons. First things first, California Superior Court is its lowest level of courts. This means that this doesn't even have binding precedent over another California court at this time. At the very least, it's persuasive evidence, which is important because it might make another judge either in California or in another state slightly more willing to rule them violative of their own state's law. But it's not binding evidence. It's not binding on any other court, not even within California as a whole, just within that one courtroom at this time. Also, when looking at this, you have to remember that on a whole, it's very easy to analogize a show cause penalty to a non-compete clause. California, generally speaking, is very hostile towards non-compete clause to begin with. They view them as kind of an unfair restraint on trade. For them to rule that a show cause penalty was violative, and if they did analogize it, in fact, to a non-compete clause, it does not surprise me. And finally, the NCA will almost certainly appeal this ruling. It'll be interesting to see what happens if it does, in fact, work its way up to the California Supreme Court. But at this very time, it is way too small of a sample size to truly wonder whether this will have a serious impact upon the NCA long term. But it was very interesting to see. Remember, this is the last leg of McNair's lawsuit against the NCA. He has already lost his defamation lawsuit in a jury trial 9-3. Defamation, in case you're unaware, very hard standard proof. You have to show that the offending party had actual malice, which a jury did not believe the NCA had. So very interesting to hear. Certainly cause for concern for the NCA, but nothing to really worry about yet in terms of the long-term effects. And I think Larry Scott and the Big West Commissioner's reactions were an overreaction at this time, but very interesting. And then the other big lawsuit going on right now, the And with it being October, we can finally start to talk about some college basketball. The lawsuit against James Gatto, the former Adidas executive, Merrill Code, a former player representative, and Adidas and Nike representative himself, and Christian Dawkins, a former runner, continuing to move along. Right now, the U.S. government star witness, Brian Bowen, the father of Brian Bowen II, a basketball player who would have played at Louisville, but after being ruled ineligible by the NCAA, is now playing in Australia. Bowen, very much the star witness for the government, he's detailing how this this practice of paying players worked its way all the way down to the high school level, playing for club teams, playing for a particular high school, and then getting paid to play at a member school for the various shoe company. Very interesting to start. First things first, I want to say that I do believe that Players should be paid when you especially consider the millions of dollars that they bring in for their member institutions. I do think they should be paid. However, I want to be very clear when I say that I'm not sure if paying players alone will necessarily cease this practice of shoe companies shelling out big money 
for people close to or the player's parents or the player themselves to attend their school, play for their team, or sign with their institution. Remember, this is specifically in relation to a player signing with the school. It's not necessarily to ensure that the player signed with the company long term. So I'm not sure if paying them will essentially negate this whole practice as has been the claim by some. Also, keep in mind when we're talking about this whole shoe issue, and especially, and this is why I think listening to Brian Bowen's testimony is so interesting, is he very much shows that this is something that starts when these players are very young. They're typically identified in their teenage years, 11, 12, 13. They're recruited to play for club teams or AAU teams that are sponsored by the shoe companies to begin with, and then they work them way up the ladder, typically finding themselves at a number of top private or public high schools in their area, then getting from there, they're playing on the same travel teams. They sign with these schools, and they hopefully work their way right up to the NBA level. Very hard to break such an astonished system. The AAU system across the board has taken a lot of flack over recent years, and it's rightfully deserved, in my opinion, most of it. I would like to see college basketball get cleaned up. But the one thing that I do find interesting about this is how we're not hearing any of these issues with football. Football, remember, equally has the same ties with shoe companies, yet the big difference there is the requisite amount of time that players have to play three years versus one. Remember, you have to be a junior level player to be eligible to go to the NFL draft. Conversely, with basketball, you just need to be one year removed from your 18th birthday. We've already seen members of the Ball family test that rule in their own ways. A number of players have played abroad to avoid going to college, but as of yet, the college basketball model appears to be here to stay. However, I do think that if you're really trying to eliminate this undue influence of the shoe companies, the correct answer is a combination of, yes, getting these pairs played, making it so that they're not reliable on these shoe companies just to be able to, for example, in the issue of former Ole Miss offensive lineman Larry Tunsil pay their mother's light bills. But at the same time, I'd love to see the players be required to spend more time in school for a number of reasons on this, but the most obvious one being that once these players leave, it's very hard for them to go back and get an education. If you haven't seen it, the average time for a professional athlete is somewhere in the neighborhood of between three and five years, but that is the average. So it's very likely that a guy maybe goes to a training cab or he signs a one-year deal and we never hear from him again. If a basketball player were required to stay to their sophomore or if they went to the complete football route to their junior years, many of them would in fact earn their degrees. Most of these guys enter school and enroll in the summer going into their freshman year. They then take classes throughout the summer period of their freshman year and sophomore year. By the time they got to that second semester junior, most of them would have attained enough credits to earn their degrees. Now they have their college degree, even if it's worth it, they at least are fortunate enough to have the degree. And then they would then be able to move along with their lives, try their championship dreams. But if that doesn't work out, at the very least, they'll be able to know that they don't have to go back to school to earn their degree. So another very interesting thing, certainly a lot of people are testing the NCAA right now. A lot of people are unhappy with it, pointing out the system where essentially these players are slaves to their schools. I certainly agree with it, but I think that a lot of the issues that have been thrown out as ways to fix the system have been overblown. And I don't know if the correct answer is a simply one size fits all shoe. I certainly don't think it is, but we'll continue to monitor it from here. So that moves us along to the Heisman Trophy race. 
Going into this last weekend, the Heisman Trophy race was very interesting. There was a number of interesting names. My personal pick for the month of September, like I mentioned, was Benny Snell Jr., the running back at Kentucky. However, after this weekend, we very much saw a stratification between the Heisman Trophy candidates. Right now, I hate to say it, but it really is two a tag of low, the Alabama quarterback and everyone else. Tag of low, throwing four touchdowns against Arkansas this past weekend. Rarely played in the fourth quarter yet. Matter of fact, I don't even think he's played in the fourth quarter yet in the six games into the college football season. And then everyone else. In my opinion, his closest follow-up would be Dwayne Haskins, the Ohio State quarterback. He has the most touchdowns right now in college football at 25. However, he threw six touchdowns to two interceptions against Indiana this last weekend. And a lot of Dwayne Haskins' plays are due to his receivers, in my opinion, not necessarily him. Then we've got Kyler Murray, who I thought had a chance of winning the Heisman Trophy just because of the uniqueness of his story. Remember, Murray was drafted by the Oakland Athletics in the last MLB draft. He was given a $4.6 million signing bonus, but he chose to play his last year of college football. Unfortunately, Murray's team lost to Texas this last weekend in the Red River Shootout. He threw four touchdowns to one interception against Texas, and while he'll still remain, I think, a finalist or a fringe contender, probably the end of his candidacy. That leads us to the other quarterback who I think had a legitimate shot of catching Tagovailoa, Will Greer at West Virginia. Fortunately for Greer, his Mountaineers team is still undefeated, although they do have a tough matchup this weekend having to go on the road to a very motivated and competitive Iowa State team. However, his candidacy certainly took a hit after his three red zone in touchdown, excuse me, three red down red zone interceptions against Kansas last weekend. Then Benny Snell, very unfortunate here. My Heisman trophy pick for the month of September, like I said. Unfortunately, Snell's team suffered their first loss of the weekend when Kentucky lost to AM in overtime, and Snell was only given the ball for 13 times, amassing only 60 yards. Certainly, Kentucky will still remain a player in the SEC East, but it's likely that Snell's candidacy ends there, barring them upsetting Georgia what would be a huge, massive upset, and then coming out of the SEC East as champions. However, I will say the one benefit for Snell and the Wildcats is that their one loss did come to SEC West member of Texas A&M. Then Daryl Henderson, who's continued to rise up some people's Heisman Trophy list, the Memphis running back and punt returner. If you haven't missed, you definitely want to check out some of his punt return highlights. He is a dynamic and explosive playmaker. However, Henderson's knock will certainly be the fact that Memphis already has two losses to Navy and Tulane. The Tulane game certainly not a team you want to get blown out by, and they've got a tough game this weekend against Central Florida. So with three losses, very hard to see Henderson getting the nod there. And then lastly, LaVisca Chenault, arguably the Pac-12's best offensive player right now, which saying that going into the season, you'd be surprised to, knowing that the Pac-12 has Bryce Love, last year's Heisman Trophy runner-up, and Justin Herbert, who may be the most ready NFL-ready quarterback in all of college football right now. However, Chenault's team going to face a tough road gig this weekend when they travel to Los Angeles to take on USC. If they lose that game, my guess is Chenault's candidacy ends there. So that moves us along to previewing this weekend's top group of five games. First things first, I want to preview one power five game, which I forgot to on Monday. UCLA traveling to Cal. Cal right now seven and a half point favorites coming off a loss to Arizona 24-17. UCLA coming off a loss of their own to Washington 31-24. UCLA is winless at the moment, and Cal certainly has looked good with running back Ross Bowers. However, excuse me, running back Patrick Reed. However, 
Cal certainly has struggled from quarterback play. UCLA, interestingly, has looked better to me every week. The big surprise and thing that I noticed was the game they played against Oklahoma, where even with them easily being manhandled, they continued to fight till the end. They've looked better every week. They've continued to improve. And I think UCLA pulls off the upset here over a Cal team, which while they will certainly have improved defense and a decent run game, I don't think they have the quarterback play necessary. And I expect Dorian Thompson-Robinson to go off against Cal's secondary, which has been hit or miss at times. Then we've got South Florida traveling to Tulsa. South Florida right now, one of the last undefeated teams in all of college football. They're seven and a half point favorites. They're coming off a victory over UMass, which was closer than necessary. Tulsa, on the other hand, lost to Houston on a Thursday night. Tulsa, in many ways, has been a good measuring stick for the other group of five members. And I think South Florida gets the job done here. Blake Burnett, South Florida's quarterback, continuing to impress. Charlie Strong's team looking good. And certainly interesting to see how their season ends up. Remember, South Florida last year was one big play away from defeating Central Florida and derailing their entire undefeated season. Then we've got Akron traveling to Buffalo. Buffalo right now nine-point favorites. Akron coming off a loss to Miami, Ohio. Buffalo coming off a victory over Central Michigan. Tyree Jackson certainly impressing many NFL scouts. Buffalo starting quarterback. Anthony Johnson, like I said before, probably the best group of five wide receiver in the country right now. I think Buffalo gets the job done here. Nine points, though, does seem to be about the right number. Then we've got possibly the biggest group of five matchup of the weekend, Central Michigan, excuse me, Central Florida traveling to Memphis. Central Florida, though, interestingly, only favored by four points. Definitely going to take the over on that one. Remember, Central Florida coming off another victory over SMU in what was never a close game. Memphis, on the other hand, handily beat a UConn team. And like I've mentioned, they've got dynamic play number Daryl Henderson to rely on. But the one thing that separates this game is the quarterback play between Memphis quarterback Brady White and Central Florida quarterback Mackenzie Milton. White, I think many people thought, would it show much vast improvement after he teamed up with former coach at Arizona State, Mike Norvell. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. I think Central Florida gets the job done here, and I certainly would take the over on this one. Then we've got Hawaii traveling to BYU. BYU right now 12.5-point underdogs. Certainly right now, this is the game that I think people are going to be most surprised about when Hawaii does pull off the upset here. Hawaii also got some good news when it was announced today that Cole McDonald will be back from injury. Right now, he's got 24 touchdowns, although he did miss last weekend's game against Wyoming. Fortunately, though, in his absence, Chivon Cordero filled in and was able to get the job done. Also, in case you've missed it, I believe that Hawaii head coach Nick Rolovich right now should be in the conversation for coach of the year. His team 6-1, and 3-0 in the Mountain West. Their only loss coming to an Army team, which has certainly surprised people most recently, taking Oklahoma to overtime. Also, Hawaii, many people picked to finish last in the Mountain West after starting quarterback Drew Brown transferred to Oklahoma State. And one of their better wide receivers, Dylan Coley, transferred to BYU. Certainly going to be an interesting subplot to this game. BYU, on the other hand, Kalani Sataki's team coming off a loss to Utah State, 45-20. to also, Utah State's quarterback, Jordan Love, is very similar to Cole McDonald. And I think for that reason, we're going to see we're going to see Hawaii get the job done. While BYU does have nice wins over Arizona and Wisconsin, I think a lot of people are still sleeping on this Hawaii team. And the one thing that I think gives Hawaii another edge in this game, on top of the other things, is that they've already had to go up against the triple option offense once this year. In, a game, in their only loss to Army. So I've got the Rainbow Warriors pulling out the upset 
moving to seven and one right there. Then we've got Wyoming taking on Fresno State. Fresno State favored by 18 and a half. Certainly a little higher for me. I would take the under. Wyoming, like I mentioned, coming off that loss to Hawaii. Fresno State on the other hand beat Nevada 21 to 3. Would not be surprised if that's the final score of this game going forward. Wyoming certainly dealing with the aftermath, having lost Josh Allen, but continuing to show improvement. Their defense certainly is legitimate, but their offense, unfortunately, is not where it needs to be. Fresno State also very interesting matchup for them. Remember, after San Diego State's surprising upset over Boise State last weekend, the Mountain West division is certainly going to come down. The Mountain West West division is certainly going to come down to either them or San Diego State. But I've got Fresno State pulling off the upset, excuse me, pulling off the win here, although I do expect them to be less than 18 and a half points. Then another big Mountain West matchup, we've got Air Force traveling to San Diego State. San Diego State, 10 and a half points favorites there. Like I mentioned, coming off that big win over Boise State, what makes this win even more interesting is that they're doing it without starting running back Jawan Washington, who suffered a collarbone injury, and starting quarterback Chapman, who's dealing with a knee injury. However, like I said earlier, I do believe that the that the Aztecs could possibly be even better with their replacements in Chase Jasmine and Ryan Agnew. However, what makes this game interesting for me is that if the Aztecs are going to contend for a Mountain West championship this year, they have to show that they can not only go on the road and pull off a big victory over the Boise State Broncos, but then they also have to be able to turn around, get refocused, and pull off a victory over a team they should beat in Air Force. Certainly going to be an interesting one to watch. If the Aztecs do manage to win this game, I think they will be able to come out of their side of the Mountain Division. But do not be surprised if Air Force manages to come in there. And even with having suffered, even with having been beaten a couple times earlier in the year. Never a team you want to sleep on. Air Force in their own right is coming off a route of Navy 35-7. to And what makes that game interesting is that starting quarterback Arian Worthman only managed to run for 54 yards. So I've got San Diego State pulling off the victory here, but don't be surprised if it's closer. Certainly thinking San Diego State maybe wins by as little as three points, but at the same time, they could just run roughshod over Air Force's defense. And then finally, the last big group of five game of the weekend, we've got Temple traveling to Navy. Temple favored by a touchdown there. Temple coming off a 49-6 victory over ECU. Like I mentioned, Navy being absolutely drummed by Air Force last weekend. Certainly not what we wanted to see from Ken Niamatolo's team. We expect a lot more things with the return of Malcolm, Malcolm Perry. Temple on their side, many people picked them to win their side of the American Conference this year. And unfortunately, they came out a little bit slow out of the gate. But the one good thing for them is that all their losses have come out of conference. So they're certainly still in the running for an American Conference Championship game berth. Temple should get the job done here. Although I do think that that one touchdown difference will be the final score. So that's it for me today, guys. I'll be back on Monday to discuss all of this weekend's tops matchups. Certainly going to be another interesting game weekend of college football. A lot of teams will continue to separate themselves as we move closer to the college football playoff. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll see you soon. It's Inside You, the College Podcast with your host, Xavier Audic, signing out. Bye.